0: Women of War is written and recorded on Wurundjeri land. We pay our respect to Elders past and present, and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners. Sovereignty was never ceded. This episode contains references to murder, sexual assault, forced sex work and trafficking, racism and colonialism. It also contains some naughty language. It may not be suitable for all listeners. is Annette, how do you
1: do? I'm so glad to be here with you. Yes, that Annette, and I, the sister of the family. Here she comes.
0: My name is Marilyn, how do you do? I'm so glad to be here with you. Well, yes, and that was Marilyn. And now we have the mother of the show. Here she is.
1: I'm so happy to be with you today. Would you like to listen to Dave the Bassman play? Would you like to listen to Dave
0: the Bassman play? All you gotta do is let me know. Chop when I say go, 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 go! Go, go,
1: go, 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 Dave. Hi, I'm Nicola and I'm Hannah. We need to tell, should we tell the people who we are? I'm Nicola and you're Hannah. Yes, we have names. We Ah. also do things.
0: I'm Nicola and I am a historian and a teacher in training who's very interested in making history accessible and exciting to all Australians.
1: And if you hadn't picked it up by now, I am Hannah. Um, I'm a PhD student at... Monash University. I'm sure know, about that. I don't know why I always say at Monash University in case you need to check my credentials. Make sure I'm not lying. Oh, like
0: oh, that poor girl. She must pay so much for parking. <laughs> she does. That's oh, true. by the way, like I'm interested in making history accessible for all people. But like, it's Anzac. It was Anzac Day, which is like our national day of. Remembrance, but not Remembrance Day, which is 11th of the 11th of the, uh, mm. this year and all years. It's, um, al- it's always
1: the 11th of November. Yeah.
0: Um, and it commemorates the landing of Australia and New Zealand troops on the shores of the Dardanelles as part of the... Oh, G- nah, way Shores of Gallipoli <laughs> as part of the Dardanelles com- campaign. It has become quite a loaded political issue. And we're going to
1: take that issue now. Put it over there. Yeah, over there. It's just in the corner now. It's Watching you kiss. Uh oh, oh. I'm just dancing on my own. She is actually dancing. It's quite impressive. Mm, thank you.
0: Welcome to season two of Women of War, subtitle More Women, More War, where we wander through history to talk about all the interesting women who found themselves in the middle of a war and what they decided to do about it. If you like what we do, please check us a review at Apple Podcasts. We love attention. Yeah, that's it. All shout into the void of social media. We have an account on all the main platforms, like the ones all people use anyway. So come say hey, and if you like the pod. Anyway, to business. So today, if I've read the schedule correctly, we're talking about Deborah Mailman, Miranda Tapsell, Jessica Mowboy, and Shari Sevens. Look, I'm going to be honest with you, Hannah. I don't know if Jess Mowboy's run on Australian Idol it counts as a war, but it was a national tragedy.
1: She didn't win. Though Damien Leith is very, very good. Yeah, no, I'm actually talking about um, Australia's mission where we wage war against Europe through Eurovision so that mm. we sow seeds of discord and actually become Europe's overlords. Benevolent overlords. Benevolent overlords. Yeah. We're nice people. It's fine. Um, but actually, no, I'm talking about the women who performed as singers and entertainers in the Vietnam War. So national icons Deborah, Miranda, Jess and Shari played some of these in the Aussie film The Sapphires. And
0: if you haven't seen that, it's not very well known
1: outside of Australia. That's I an international tragedy. Definitely. I mean, everyone should go watch. It's a banger. I mean, let's just end this episode here. Like, we just, let's just go. All right. Movie night? Women of War. Thanks. Bye. Follow us on Twitter. All right. See you next time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I'm really excited about this episode because we are in my wheelhouse. Like, I know admittedly more about the people protesting the war than about the people Your participating in the is war. It's so
0: much more fun but than But
1: I just it's, we're just, in the Cold War, I'm, I'm so just happy. Full of dead veterans. I have deliberately chosen fun boppy history. It's great. Yeah. Protests are fun. Cold War is fun. Nuclear weapons are fun. Okay, like let's not say so that. I'm going to see right myself now. out. It's yeah. fun.
0: <laughs> All right. So, this is our first episode on the Vietnam War. It won't be the last. Hannah, you made that really ominous. Um, we have many women to cover in different roles in Vietnam, but today we're going to start with the grooviest because this wall was funky, not
1: groovy. Funky. I heard groovy. I like funky. I like groovy. You like funky funk.
0: Total opposite of groove. So this wall was not groovy or funky. What's what's the word I'm looking for? Ah, yes, crimes against humanity. The phrase, fucking horrific. Let's go with that. So we're going to ease you into the Vietnam War, little baby steps at a time, or you might run screaming
1: from us and never listen again. Also, if you've been paying attention, you'll know that the Vietnam War is incredibly controversial and complicated. I mean, there's the fact that it's called the American war in Vietnam because they saw everybody coming into their country as the Americans, Um, that might be a bit of a giveaway or, you know, also the fact that in Australia the Vietnam War Memorial and Anzac Parade wasn't built until 1992. Question: Yes, Nicola. Did
0: Keating have something to do with that? I don't know. Because he'd he'd love reclaiming non-colonialist-ish, British colonialist wars for a separate Australian identity in order to push for the Republic.
1: The Republic. You could be right. I I do not know. War memorials. Paul, uh, we know you're listening. Please let us know. Yeah. You know, come shout out into the void with us, Paul Keating. (laughs) Um, Anyway, this war is definitely not as straightforward as that German guy with the stupid mustache is clearly an egomaniacal dictator committing crimes against humanity. Uh, We might have our own personal opinions, but in this ep, we're going to try to not take a side. We're just here to educate and entertain and bop to some fun tunes. Um, and most of those tunes are courtesy of the National Film and Sound Archive and Lorraine Desmond herself. Now, the side note, we will probably butcher some more French. Je suis désolé. Désolé.
0: Désolé. Désolé!
1: Hey, hoppa. Ah, no, no. Anyway, which brings us to what I have titled War in Vietnam, the French are at it again. Take it away, Nicola.
0: Now, you might be a bit confused as to why the French are being blamed for this war, which we normally associate with the Americans and, of course, the the Vietnamese. Well, in a word, it's colonialism. Yep, white people are back on their shit again, and this time it starts with the French colonisation of Indochina in the late 1800s. Missionaries have turned up in the 1700s as missionaries are wont to do. You've got to, like, put out sticky tape. And they get stuck on ah. it, and then in the morning you like hose it off. Is See, I thought
1: you used the copper tape, and then like they get a little electrical charge as they nah, cross it, nah. and then they are like oop, and they go away. Oh no, because this is the seventeen hundreds; they haven't invented that yet. That's You've true. You've got to use a sticky tape. That's true. I don't think I feel like sticky tape is less historical than copper tape.
0: Ah, fly paper. Anyway, um,
1: missionaries are turned
0: up. In the 1700s in Indochina, as missionaries are wanted to do and by the 1870s, France had officially decided it would quite like some territory in Southeast Asia. I don't know why this is coming out so English, but we're just going to keep going. Thank you very much. And took control of the modern-day cities of Cambodia, Laos, and Vietnam.
1: So, Vietnam had spent a fair bit of time fending off successful and unsuccessful attempts at colonization. And by a fair bit, I mean since the Chinese conquered Vietnam in 111 BCE. So the Vietnamese had developed a pretty well-developed sense of leave us the fuck alone by the time France came on the scene. So pretty much as soon as France had dipped their toe in the water, Vietnamese resistance to French rule began. Good for them. So thanks to the French system of colonial rule, it was difficult for this resistance to emerge in the formal political structures, i.e. anti-colonial figures couldn't start a political party on the platform of Get out of our country, you French fox.
0: So instead, early resistance to colonial rule in Vietnam took a more revolutionary approach. And by revolutionary, we don't mean innovative, but revolutionary is in guns and demonstrations and fun slogans. There are a few different efforts, so we're going to run through them really quickly. First up, we had Fanboy Chow, an early nationalist who helped form an organization called the Vietnamese Restoration League, inspired by the Chinese revolutionaries of 1912. The League wanted to say adieu to the French and establish a democratic republic, but struggled to really gain widespread support.
1: Next, there was the Constitutionalist Party of the 1920s, who wanted reform via cooperation with ruling powers, but that didn't work, and so it was back to revolutionary tactics. And so, in the tradition of all revolutions everywhere since 1917, the Communists arrived in the form of the Indochinese Communist Party, the most successful nationalist organisation. So now, I reckon even if you don't know anything about Vietnamese history, you've probably heard of this guy, or at the very least, the city named after him. Described by Lonely Planet as, quote, a chaotic whirl, the city breathes life and vitality into all who settle here, and visitors cannot help but be hauled along for the ride, end quote.
0: And if you guessed Ho Chi Minh, Brownie points to you. Ho was born in 1890 in a small village in central Vietnam, and he cut his teeth right from the beginning when he was expelled from the National Academy after protesting against the Emperor and French rule in Indochina. In 1911, Ho left Vietnam. He travelled around a bit but ended up in France around the end of World War I, which is convenient timing for the Treaty of Versailles, the post-war peace negotiations where Ho tried to convince world leaders that Vietnam should be able to rule itself. There's a
1: war too early there.
0: (laughs) European powers with special Asian guest star Japan and Johnny-come-lately-the-USA were still loving the whole colonial rule thing because it gave them money and power and so they weren't
1: particularly interested in what Ho had to say. So Ho joined the French Communist Party before moving to Moscow in 1923 to learn from the OG popular communist state. By 1924, Ho was in China working to build a revolutionary movement for the liberation of Indochina. From there, Ho helped found the Indo-Chinese Communist Party, or ICP, in 1930. By the mid-1930s, the ICP had been built up into an important nationalist organization. And
0: here we grind up against World War II again. Don't grab my ass, World War II, I'm just here to dance with my friends. Jesus fucking Christ. But it is just a teensy bit important to cover since World War II was notoriously not great for the French. Not great. Recap, France more or less surrendered to Germany in June 1940 under complex circumstances. If you want to know more about
1: this, listen to our episode on Edith Piaf. Oh, wow,
0: what great cross-promotion. Thank you, thank you. Um, This led to France giving up control of Indochina to Japan, though the French political administration remained. The communists tried to use the situation by staging an uprising in southern Vietnam, but that failed and key leaders were executed while others here in the mountains.
1: In May 1941, Ho Chi Minh helped establish the Vietnam Doc Lap Dong Minh, known more commonly as the Viet Minh, an organisation designed to appeal to both radicals and moderates, which is a pretty impressive kind of dual purpose I'm there. sure
0: that won't end badly for anybody. Never.
1: never. Viet Minh argued for national independence and social reform.
0: In March 1945, France was now liberated and so potentially a threat to the Japanese again. So the Japanese got rid of the French colonial system and established a government in collaboration with the Vietnamese Emperor Bao Dai, which led to a classic power vacuum the Vietnam were able to exploit to gain control of the sixth northern provinces. Famine further undermined the Japanese-supported government, and so when Japan unconditionally surrendered in August 1945 after the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, fuck nuclear bombs though, the Viet Minh saw their opportunity.
1: The creatively named August Revolution met with little resistance, probably because everyone was dead, starving, or just thoroughly confused about who was in charge now. Bao Dai was forced to abdicate, and the Viet Minh gained control over most of the northern and central provinces. On the 2nd of September, Ho Chi Minh declared the independence of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. Cue celebratory music and babies dancing in the streets. Except it wasn't all over Red Rover.
0: Other nationalist organisations were like, ah who said you could rule? At the other end of the spectrum, the terms of Japan's surrender included the little detail that Britain and China should occupy the region to, air quotes, help stabilise the country.
1: We're entering the period of decolonisation here, which is where everything is a mess of we have liberated you from colonial rule and you shall self-govern, but we're going to hang around and tell you how to do that and micromanage the shit out of you. British troops arrived in September and helped the existing French forces push out the Viet Minh and France decided to retake control of the country. In October... 1945, the French began a military campaign against the Viet Minh and thus began the First Indochina War. Finally, here we are! The Vietnam War! Mmm, kinda. Oh. The First Indochina War is the Vietnam War prequel that sort of merges with the Vietnam War itself when the Yanks arrive. So, y'all ready to condense 20 years of history into a quick soundbite? Always. So, the French military are fighting the Viet Minh, Ho Chi
0: Minh's forces. By February 1946, France had re-established their control over southern Vietnam. Ho Chi Minh was willing to negotiate with the French to protect Vietnamese interests. In November 1945, Ho rebranded the ICP as a National Assembly to attract wider support. Smart move, because communist was a word sure to spark intense feelings no matter what side of the increasingly thick iron curtain you sat on. But negotiation didn't really get them very far. France was determined to stay in charge of Vietnam, seeing the colony as a way to help rebuild after the devastation of World War II. Sweet, sweet taxes and cheap, cheap goods.
1: All of this came to a head in 1946, when things erupted into a full-blown war between Vietnamese nationalists, which are communists and fake mustaches for the most part, and the French colonial rulers. For three years, no one was able to win a clear advantage. On one side, you had the French, with superior weapons, but on the other side, you had the Viet Minh forces, who were able to take advantage of the land and effectively use guerrilla tactics to gain a strong foothold in the north. In addition, Ho Chi Minh was a super popular guy.
0: Shockingly, to the French at least, Ho's platform of Vietnamese independence appealed to many people who were bloody sick of being ruled by outsiders. The French brought back the older Emperor Bao Dai in 1949 to try to redirect this nationalist sentiment, but the Vietnamese people were no dummies and saw this as the puppet government it was. It's kind of ironic that the French are like, hey, they won't notice this puppet government. It's like, guys, what did you just go through with Vichy? Anyway. guys.
1: Look in the mirror.
0: <laughs> the European powers loved installing puppet governments in their colonies when the people there started agitating for independence, and it never works. The Viet Minh began to reach into the south, and the French had to decide, is this worth it?
1: All right, so we've got to zoom, zoom, zoom out zoom, zoom, to zoom. look at the Cold War. Yeah, zoom, zoom, zoom. My jam, zoom, I'm so happy. Zoom, so zoom. all this is happening while the world is settling into the new normal of the Cold War which at kind of the basic bare bones level is the state of tension between the democratic capitalist US and the communist Soviet Union. Though everyone had been friends during World War II because of the common enemy of Hitler, pretty much immediately after I can the war- to hate that guy. <laughs> that guy. After the war, the US and the Soviets began side-eyeing each other suspiciously, like, you look shifty over there. Uh, both saw imperialistic tendencies in the other, which was accurate- um, and both were concerned about the other gaining dominance over the world because they each wanted to dominate the world. Much of the world allied with one of the two camps. And the US and Soviet Union spent a lot of time, energy and money trying to push their own political ideologies on each other. Add some nuclear weapons into the mix and you've got a party. I'm going to take over here because Hannah clearly cannot be trusted. No, to piss off. So the arms race came about officially because each side worried that the other posed a serious threat to the world. And so the best way to solve this was to have nuclear bombs that could destroy the entire world. Which is great logic. Alongside the dick measuring, no, I mean weapons stockpiling going on, both the US and the Soviets also began engaging in puppet warfare, which is not as muppety as it sounds. Basically, they weren't going to go to a formal hot war with each other, because that would likely end in aforementioned global annihilation, but they would both pick sides in other wars and send supplies, troops, weapons, fun times, propaganda, etc. to help their chosen champion win. Unsurprisingly, the Soviets backed communist forces and helped get communist regimes into power, while the US backed anti-communists to prevent the, quote, domino effect of all countries falling to the depraved communist ideology. I just want to give a
0: shout out to Gamal Abdel Nasser, because he's been on my mind lately as well, for playing the so he was the ruler of Egypt at the time, for playing the Soviets and the Yankees off each other to get more stuff. I before- love it being an absolute king and nationalising the Suez Canal and causing the Suez Canal crisis of 1957. I love it. Blocking the world's trade for three months. Take that, ever given. So in 1949, the Chinese Communist Party gained control of the country and declared the People's Republic of China, which was a great coup for the communist camp because now the Soviets had a big and powerful communist ally and to the outside they were put forward that they were really, really good friends.
1: They were not. They were not. It was basically like, I don't know, just this, We're we're staying together for the kids. Yes, that's it. That's exactly what I was trying to think of. Like, we are the good guys. We love each other. We hate each other. (laughs)
0: <laughs> to make matters worse for the US and the democracy side, the Korean War kicked off in 1950 when communist forces in North Korea marched on South Korea. North Korea was supported by the Soviets and China, while South Korea was supported by the Yangs, which is when the classic sitcom MASH is set. But MASH is actually much more about the experiences of the Vietnam War, but wasn't actually allowed to be about that. I didn't know that. That is yeah. interesting. That's why the war goes, the show goes for like 11 years. It does. And the Korean War went for like three. Yeah.
1: Like, it's really
0: good. I believe Also, you. Alan Elder is a slice.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, he's such a he's, He is such a slice. The key takeaway here, though, <laughs> is
0: that communist forces were gaining power and support in many places in Southeast Asia, which made the American very nervous, especially after the Soviets and the Chinese formally recognised Ho Chi Minh and the Viet Minh as
1: the legitimate rulers of Vietnam. So the aforementioned Domino theory was widely believed in the US. Um, basically, and not as Nicola has ad- added to the script that it was about Domino's Pizza, but basically the Domino's theory... Pushed the idea that once one country fell to communism, all the others would follow, like you're pushing down a stack of dominoes.
0: A line of dominoes?
1: A line of dominoes? Yeah, because if yeah. you have a
0: stack, you just fall over.
1: That's true. Yeah. I don't know, I don't play dominoes. I play it with the kids. Sometimes. I don't eat dominoes but... pizza either. To prevent this, the US pledged to support the French in Vietnam, so the communist Viet Minh would not gain control of the country and push down another domino. By early 1950, the US formally recognised Bao Dai's French puppet government as legit rulers and began supplying the French forces. Which the French thought was great for a hot sec, before the Viet Minh were able to strengthen their hold on the South despite the boost the US gave France. It helped that Communist China had supplied the Viet Minh in much the same way the US supplied the French. By late 1950, the Viet Minh was gaining the upper hand over the French. By presenting their fight as a nationalist struggle rather than a communist rebellion, the Viet Minh also gradually gained even wider support among the Vietnamese population.
0: So not to add grist to the meme, sorry Evelyn, but the French were losing the upper hand generally in the 1950s, which the British were also doing in their colonies, something, something to us, canal crisis, something, something, ever given, something, something. It's overall just not a great time to be a colonial p- power. We do call this period the decolonization period for a reason, but I don't actually like that name because it implies like the colonists just like left willingly, mm. where in actuality it was after after
1: decades and decades of independence pushes. like, And even in the decolonisation period, it's not like a, okay, we'll leave now. Yeah, it's like, like you're officially the- independent, but... You want some help with that governing? You, yeah. need, you need some help. You, you're such babies. You don't know how to govern mm. yet because, you know, we took your government away for centuries. So we're going to actually teach you how to govern. So we're going to hang around for a little bit longer. Yeah. Is that cool with you? Sweet. Okay, bye. Also, can we take all your natural resources?
0: Thank yeah. you. In late 1953, a large French military force was sent to DNB bien Few in the northwest to protect the Mekong River Valley from the Viet Minh. And if you know the classic song, We Didn't Start the Fire by Billy Joel, then you know where this is going.
1: Din, Ben, Poo Falls, rock around the clock. Einstein, Einstein James Dean, Brooklyn, French had work. a winning team. By this point,
0: the French were ready for it to be over. I mean, valid. They've been at war for a really long time. Negotiations for peace were about to begin in Geneva in May 1954. So the general who sent troops to Dien Bien Phu thought that a final victory before these negotiations would put France on a stronger footing. Shockingly, miscalculation of Vietnamese forces added to battle-weary French troops resulted in a two-month-long siege at Dien Bien Phu. Sieges are notoriously shitty for those inside the castle or military base or whatever have you. Food, ammunition, medicine, the will to live all begin to run out, even if your elite squad of female samurai is fighting on your side.
1: Makano Takiko is not here. Yeah, I know. Let's be very clear. That was a reference to another episode, not that the Vietnamese don't have samurai, because that's a Japanese thing. Yes. Yes. So, May 7th. The day peace negotiations were to begin in Geneva, Dan Ben Phu fell. Rock around the clock. Einstein, James Dean, Brooklyn's Ghana, winning that. team. Elvis Presley, Peter Pan, da-da-da-da, Disneyland. Bardo, Budapest, Alabama, Alabama Cruise Jets, Princess Grace, Peyton Place, Trouble in the Pace. Suez. And we're back to the Suez. All right. Okay, so this was the final straw for France's support of the war. And by July, France agreed to withdraw from Vietnam, or at least mostly withdraw from Vietnam. The Geneva Accords signed in July established the 17th parallel between the north and south of Vietnam. In the north, Ho Chi Minh and the Communists had control of the Democratic Republic of Vietnam. In the south, France transferred ruling authority to the state of Vietnam under Bao Dai, and then later Ngo Dinh Dinh. All military forces were to withdraw from a demilitarized zone at the 17th parallel within a year, and a general election was to be held in 1956 to decide the future of Vietnam. US President at the time, Dwight Eisenhower, Dwight acting, D. acting as the beacon and protector of democracy that America was during this period, tried to assure <laughs> Ho Chi
0: Minh. <laughs> Sarah I'm the about the Voting Rights Act of 1964.
1: Oh, God. Okay, Continue. <laughs> tried to ensure Ho Chi Minh couldn't gain too much power in these unified elections by encouraging political divisions through psychological warfare and paramilitary operations, which were unofficial but really official military action. Like, just Google the CIA in the Cold War. It's just, it's a fucking trip. Like, the Um, Unabomber. Like, so much. MKUltra. Just, the US is just like... (laughs) We're totally separate and not at all interfering in anything. Except we're interfering in everything. They've got sort. Of, They're just like got fingers in. Fi- they've got a finger in every pie, and every
0: pie is another pie. Yeah, it's yeah. Yep. The
1: Soviet Union, terrible dictatorship. No matter how bang and young Stalin was, but they did kind of have a point about the hypocrisy of Cold War America.
0: It's all right though, because far treatment in the North also weren't playing by the rules, and they kept operatives and saboteurs in the south of Vietnam. All's fair in love and war. Not really. So with the support of the US, the Premier of South Vietnam, DiEM, managed to keep things under control in the South by late 1955. And by control, we mean he used armed forces to, quote, unquote, eradicate Viet Minh forces in the South. In October, he declared himself President of the Republic of Vietnam. I can do that too. I am just going to declare myself Mayor of the local council.
1: Look, if the US backed you, you'd probably be able to get away with
0: it. Mr. Biden...
1: The US was very happy with Diem's declaration, and extra happy when the North had trouble getting support from the Soviets or the Chinese and so couldn't contest Diem's rule. For now. Diem sent troops into communist strongholds, and by the end of 1957, the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, which we're going to call the ARVN, had killed 2,000 and arrested 65,000 suspected communists. It was also around this time that Diem began referring to the Viet Minh insurgents as the more familiar, to us, Viet Cong.
0: The Viet Cong, aka the VC, aka Victor Charlie, aka Charlie, fought back against these attacks by assassinating, assassinating, a few hundred government officials. Soon, armed struggles between the Viet Cong and the ARV had escalated into what was essentially a civil war. By 1960, Viet Cong insurgents had again become a real threat to the republic. Diem didn't help himself by alienating the general public. He forced people to move en masse to remote country locales that were supposedly far enough away from communist influence. But since this was a forced move and not a voluntary escape to the country episode, I fucking hate that show, people are increasingly unhappy with them. The ARVN attempted a coup in November 1960, which is a sure sign you fucked up and alienated the most crucial weapon in your government arsenal. Advice if you're trying to keep in power, don't piss off the armed forces who keep you in power. Solid advice, though.
1: DM did, however, manage to thwart this attempted coup by using political promotions as bribery. In December 1960, the National Liberation Front was formed by the discontented population and the communists. The NLF pushed for national independence rather than social revolution, which helped it appeal to a broader supporter base. In the South, armed insurgents organised themselves into the People's Liberation Armed Forces in early 1961.
0: Now, we know they're there, but where are the US, you might ask? Behind you! (laughs) He's behind you. No, he isn't. Yes, he is. Though increasingly unpopular with Vietnamese people, DM still enjoyed US support. Now from the latest US president, official hottest president ever, Marilyn Monroe's boyfriend, John F. Kennedy.
1: You haven't seen photos of young Biden, have you?
0: Oh, yeah. But I mean, like, as they were president. Hottest president. All right. Kennedy was just as committed as Eisenhower to preventing communist control of Southeast Asia and viewed the situation in Vietnam as crucial to curbing communist aggression. So Kennedy greenlit a counterinsurgency program. The US sent in Army Special Forces, the Green Berets, to train the ARVN in guerrilla tactics and the CIA set up the civilian irregular defence groups.
1: Remember, CIA everywhere.
0: It was also at this time in 1962 that Australia sent 30 military advisors to Vietnam to help train the South Vietnamese. The US tried to convince Diem to follow their advice, but Diem continued to resist while popular support for him and the regime continued to decline. After government forces attacked a crowd protesting repressive measures against Buddhists, Diem declared martial law in August 1963. This resulted in raids and attacks on Buddhist pagodas and further destabilised the south of the country. The US was now fed up with Diem and no longer believed he would be able to successfully reunite Vietnam under a nationalist government. So they were probably not that upset when Diem was brutally executed at the beginning of November 1963 after a coup from the ARVN. Cue even more dramatic destabilisation in the South with seven different governments in 1964 alone. It's very Australia over the past decade.
1: Back to the communists. Communist leaders were no longer deferring to Ho Chi Minh, believing he was taking too moderate a stance, and under General Secretary Li Duan, the communists created a police state in the north and began arming the People's Army of Vietnam for an offensive strike on the south in 1964. Ho Chi Minh hangs around for the next five years until his death, remaining as the face of the party, but he's no longer really a powerful figure on the inside, he's just kind of there at
0: the end of November 1963 aka okay, November 23 which is also the day doctor who premiered 1963
1: mm. JFK was assassinated isn't that why they like Redid it. Yes. Yeah.
0: They replayed it a week later, which was very yeah. unusual, because yeah. everyone was like, watching the news! Something happened. Lyndon Sorry. B. Johnson, or LBJ, became US president. In All Vietnam, the way with LBJ. Uh, I'll not avoid that. In Vietnam, American officials felt the tide turning decisively towards the communists, and advised LBJ in January 1964 that to prevent a communist takeover, the US would have to step in. The communists were now militarily strong enough to stop relying on guerrilla tactics, on the 7th of November 1965, the PLAF, People's Liberation Army forces, armed forces, sorry, attacked the US military base and it became clear that American intervention was the only way to prevent the complete collapse of South Vietnam to the communists. On the 8th of March, the first American troops began arriving. So, a quick recap of who's who here before we go any further. We have the two key sides the communist North Vietnamese and the anti-communist South Vietnamese. On the side of the communists, we had the Chinese and the Soviet Union. Laos and Cambodia, while remaining officially neutral, were also inevitably drawn into the war being on the borders of Vietnam. The North Vietnamese moved troops and supplies through both countries and so the US bombed them in retaliation. Classy. On the side of the anti-communists, we have the U.S., the Aussies, the Kiwis. Together, they made up ANZUS, plus the troops or aid from Thailand, the Philippines, Taiwan, and Spain. What are they? Whatever.
1: I don't know why Spain's there. Also, to be very clear, the
0: Kiwis deliberately sent very, very few troops mm. because they did not want to be part of this. It's a
1: very similar situation in Australia and New Zealand. Like, it's a very controversial war. It's like we've got to support them because of the U.S. are our allies because we're ANZUS now, but also. Should we really be there? We don't know. Yeah. And this is
0: the, the start of really the Kiwi turn towards Pacific independence mm. almost. Like they're not going to align themselves the US are going to align themselves with their region, which is the true which, region you know, we are in. It makes sense. The Pacific. Yeah. Whatever. Um, the second biggest hitters in this war after the US were actually the South Koreans who sent three hundred thousand troops. On the 29th of April, the Australian Prime Minister, Robert Menzies, announced that Australia had committed troops to aid the Americans in Vietnam. We were going to get this quote, but it was $240, so here is my best impression of Robert Menzies.
1: I'm very concerned about how this is going to go. It
0: is! judgment that the decision to commit a battalion in South Vietnam represents the most useful additional contribution we can make to the defence of the region at the time. The takeover of South Vietnam would be a direct military threat to Australia and all the countries of South and Southeast Asia. It must be seen as part of a thrust by communist China between the Indian and Pacific Ocean. Men's Easter Parliament, 29th of April, 1965. My
1: expectations were low, um, but somehow you, you surpassed that. That was beautiful. Thank you. And I don't think you've ever heard Robert Menzies I speak have, in your life. I
0: know I've heard him say, like, I saw the Queen go by and though she was in my eye for a
1: moment, she was in my heart forever. I need to do my eyebrows. This wasn't really all that surprising since, Men- Menzies! since Menzies had introduced the National Service Scheme, which was conscription, in November 1964. But that's definitely a story for another time because that shit gets very heated. Justifiably so. If you can hear shouting in the distance, it's
0: actually Whitlam trying to change the voting age. <laughs>
1: so, yeah. Um, the decision to send troops to Vietnam, however, actually wasn't controversial at the beginning. For example, 64% of respondents to a poll only a fortnight after Menzies committed troops to Vietnam believed that Southeast Asia would be overtaken by communists if not stopped. So implied in that is then that Australia needs to send troops to stop that communist takeover. Tell me, what do you what do you think about sending troops to Vietnam? Oh, I think it's a good idea. I think um, all countries should participate and help each other like that. Well, if it's going to protect Australia, I think it's worthwhile. Oh, I think it's got to be done. I haven't got any choice at this stage. Oh, well, I think it's necessary. Mm-hmm. Don't ask me now, I haven't thought too much about it
0: yet. Right. Well, I suppose you have to really keep them, keep the uh, communists out. But uh, I'd rather see my boys stay around Australia.
1: Well, I think it's quite a very best thing they could have done. That was a clip there from ABC footage of the Australian government's decision to send troops to Vietnam. Um, And as you can see... There was a wide range of opinions, but a lot of people, as you can hear, whatever, (laughs) as you can hear, there was a wide range of opinions and a lot of people actually were very supportive of the war. So part of this was because Australia's geographical closeness to Asia added to the perceived threat of communist takeover in the region. So if communists managed to take over all of Southeast Asia, what was to stop them taking over Australia? For a country that came to exist because it stole other people's land, white Australia has had a huge anxiety about others coming and doing the same thing to them. So from at least the mass immigration of Chinese miners during the Australian gold rushes in the mid-1800s, white Australians were wary of their Asian neighbours. God, just saying the phrase Asian neighbours made me feel like I've been taken over by the spirit of an old conservative politician. Menzies is here! It's from Menzies! Anyway, following World War II and the seemingly very real threat that Japan would invade Australia, combined with the mass decolonization of the period, meant that Australian foreign policy was increasingly concentrated on Asia and the Pacific – but not in the nice, let's make economic and familiar ties with our close neighbours way. Like the Kiwis. Like the Kiwis, yeah. Specifically, much of it was focused on protecting Australian borders from the, quote, Asian hordes, unquote, that were all turning to the dangerous and insidious communism that would then come and take over Australia and turn us all to those horrible communists and we would be forever voting for Stalin, gay.
0: My fellow Australians, if you are seeing this tape, I have been murdered. Anyway, Australia was also increasingly interested in currying favour with the US. As it became clear the US was becoming a key global power and ally in the Pacific region. As the British declined, basically. Perhaps more immediately important for many Australians, the US could provide aid and protection against the threat of communism. As the Minister for External Affairs, Richard Dick Casey put it, quote, but the black cloud of communist China hanging to the north, we must make sure our children do not end up pulling rickshaws with Hammer and sickle signs on the sides, end quote hammer and sickle being the preferred emoji of communist countries. In February 1968, respondents to another poll which asked, do you think America and her allies should increase their war effort in Vietnam for a quick victory or hold things about as they are or get out of Vietnam soon? They were also largely in favour of either increasing Australia's commitment or staying the course as it was. Only
1: 24% voted for getting out. Over the next eight years, between 50 and 60,000 Australians, depending on who you ask, um, served in the Vietnam War. The Australian battalions departing for Vietnam had little idea of what to expect on the front. Vietnam was a different beast to what Australians had encountered before. Australian and American forces developed a counter-revolutionary warfare strategy that relied on incorrect assumptions about the enemy, including that the North Vietnamese forces were outsiders that lacked any support from the South Vietnamese, which is untrue. Initially, Australian forces were largely attached to the Americans, but became the independent First Australian Task Force in 1966. So we're going to refer to them as the ATF. The ATF was based at New Dat in Phok Thai province, and consisted of two infantry battalions, an artillery regiment, an armoured squadron, a cavalry squadron, and other supporting arms and services. So as we mentioned in our episode on Edith Piaf,
0: war singers are one of the most famous and mythologised roles for women in wartime. Singers provide a welcome distraction from the horrors of war and a reminder of what the war was for. War singers, particularly female singers, often also served as objects of lust or love, a way to take soldiers' minds off their troubles.
1: In the Vietnam War, entertainers from both America and Australia regularly toured the front lines, performing on anything from an actual stage to the back of a supply jeep. So now, you may have seen Apocalypse Now, which I have not because it's my party trick to annoy film buffs by never having seen any of the films they think I should have. But if you have seen Apocalypse Now, you might remember a scene where scantily clad performers are whisked off in a helicopter when crazed soldiers stormed the stage in a haze of lust. Shockingly, this was not the typical experience for performers in (laughs) Vietnam. The government supported the sending of entertainers and believed it important to make sure that the scheme was well organized to ensure that nothing untoward or dangerous fell the performers. Other than the stress and trauma of being in an active war zone anyway. <laughs> the government also supported the entertainers because
0: they thought it might distract from the growing anti war movement. And
1: if you want to read more about the anti Vietnam War movement in more detail, see issue number ninety one of Wartime magazine for a rundown of the movement from the end of World War II to the moratoriums of the I, early nineteen seventies. The government didn't want that motivation to
0: be known, however, and painted their support of the scheme as motivated by concern for the welfare of Australian troops, so we all know that the Australian government doesn't really care about the welfare of troops after they get back. The government was also slow to enact official troop entertainment. By October 1965, troops felt forgotten, with the US civilian lieutenant colonel telling both the Australian press and parliament that Australian
1: morale was suffering due to a lack of proper entertainment and options for off-duty fun times. So, the scheme itself... Entertainment for troops in Vietnam was organized in tandem with the American administration. Many came as employees of the USO, which is the United Service Organization, a charity based in New York. These performers were paid 150 US dollars a week while on tour, along with 10 US dollars per day for expenses. Their itinerary, transport, accommodation and meals were organized by the Defense Department's Professional Entertainment Office. While in Vietnam, they were escorted by an officer Australian entertainers went to Vietnam through two avenues, as volunteers and through commercial agencies. The government-sponsored entertainers volunteered their services to the US agency and were only provided with transportation and a living allowance rather than a wage. This option was established by the government and administered by the Forces Advisory Committee on Entertainment, or FACE. Through FACE, they only had a limited salary. Often, these performers were celebrities in their own right, however, and could monetize their tour through films of their concerts performers could also go to Vietnam through the Australian Forces Overseas Fund, (AFOF), created by the RSL. Some also came to Vietnam at their own expense and would perform for the troops for free. Why, it comes and it goes in a where where is that real stuff in life to clean? Someone to love is the answer Once you found him Build your world around him Make someone happy Make just one someone happy And you, you will be happy A clip from a Ray Desmond concert on the nineteenth of September, nineteen sixty-nine. Nice, at Nui Dat, and so more than twelve hundred soldiers, Australian Task Force soldiers, were there, and there was like torrential rain, and they stayed there for the whole like two hours to hear them perform, and. Like, you watch the video, and we've, I've put it up on our website, because I think you should watch the video as well as listening to the audio, and there's these three soldiers, and they all cuddle together under their coat when it starts raining, Aww. and it's just, and I made the mistake this morning of listening to I Was Only 19, oh. and it's just, like, you can see in this video these, like, poor boys that, like, yes, horrible things are happening, but also so many of them were conscripts, like a quarter of Australian troops in Vietnam were conscripts, so they didn't want to be there in any way, shape or form, and it's just horrendous. And then you've got this singer coming in in a beautiful dress with a beautiful voice and it's like an escape, and I feel like this just shows you the power of like the mm. war singer in these sort of situations.
0: I will say, when I was in that interview with a bunch of Vietnam return okay. servicemen, so one Australian men who stayed in Vietnam, not Vietnamese service yep. which who are also in Australia. Now. There's also a lot in Australia. Yeah, and they had their own battalion at a March in the Anzac. Well, I love a few that. Years ago. Yeah. Anyway, um, some of them who worked on scripts actually didn't. It wasn't that they didn't want to be there, but it's a sense of like, okay, I've been called up. Yeah. It's time to go. Yeah. But yeah, it's a very complicated oh, story. It's so like complicated.
1: it's it's very mythologized. The mm. the you know Vietnam. Hello, veterans. Jimmy Barnes. Like How are there's you? a lot going on in this story yeah. that we do not have time to cover. Mm. But I just, the three soldiers huddling together under their oh. coat just kills me. It's like when we went to go see um, Midsummer Night's Dream. Yes,
0: <laughs> Except we weren't at war. Performers <laughs> could also find bookings through Australian, American, or Philippines-based agencies to perform at servicemen's clubs or the US Military Commercial Entertainment Unit. This option was normally taken by performers who wanted to cash in on their tour. These agents could be legit or they could be shady as far. Some, like Australian Shirley Simmons, great name, set up comfortable accommodations in a South Vietnam villa and provided entertainment for the s- entertainers on her books.
1: Others... She provided security, not entertainment.
0: Uh, yeah, sorry. I'm not <laughs> They provided the entertainment. <laughs> she provided security. <laughs> oink, oink. Many performers were underage, not paid, or working illegally on tourist visas, like backpackers used to do to pick fruit for us, so some things to change. Some agents stole performers' passports and return tickets, so they could not leave. Young female performers were particularly defenceless against sexual exploitation and some even were expected to perform sex work alongside their performances. A study of the psychological impact on female entertainers in Vietnam from 2009 revealed that 50% of the women studied
1: faced verbal or physical sexual assaults while on tour and eight reported forced or threatening sexual encounters, including rape. Through the government and private organisers, 54 concert parties toured Vietnam between 1965 and 1971. 28 of those were sponsored by the RSL's AFOF, (laughs) 21 by the government's face, (laughs) (laughs) Um, and five jointly funded by the two. Roughly 650 performers toured during this time, and about half and a half were private and government-sponsored, so it was like 50-50 split, pretty much. Mm. Some performers were big-name celebrities, but most were young newcomers to the business. Most tours would be between two and three weeks and the performers would travel between the Australian bases, American bases, recreation centres and hospitals. Privately organised commercial tours could actually last up to two years. Um, Commercial performers had to organise their own transportation around Vietnam, with Jill Kennedy, who was a performer, recalling that, quote, we'd sleep on the cement at the airport waiting for a lift out to Da Nang or Pleiku or wherever. Australian so-called civilians were last on the list. Pigs or chooks or anything would have first priority. Unlike American performers, who often flew in and out of Vietnam from Bangkok for their performances, the Australian entertainers would stay in the country for the duration of their tour. The days were gruelling, with performers often putting on more than one performance a day, sometimes up to three, all of which could last an hour or more and be on anything from actual stages to a pontoon on the river or to the back of a truck, like in the 7th Government Concert Party to Vietnam. This is Barry Gilman reporting from the Australian Task Force Base at Nui Dat in Phuc Province. One of the most welcome breaks from the war in Vietnam for young Australian Allied troops serving with the 1st Australian Task Force is made possible by a great number of young artists who give up their time to entertain servicemen overseas. Today, here at Nui Dat, on a makeshift stage set up on a large helicopter landing zone at Nui Dat, the latest concert party to visit Vietnam is entertaining more than 4,000 Australian and American troops. The Twilighters, a folk singing group, plus supporting artists, uh, which includes John Stoddart, a singer recordingist, Maria Blanche, a vocalist, Kathy Wayne, a pop singer, and uh, Valmay Johnson, who is a musical comedy star, are giving their first performance of a tour they will stage at Nui Dap and give four performances to various
0: units. Entertaining troops from Vietnam was not removed from the controversy surrounding the war. One advantage for the government, and the RSL at least, of the relative youth of the performers, was that they were more focused on their careers than on the politics of touring Vietnam, and particularly the implicit support for a controversial war that their touring suggested. Some performers were uncomfortable participating in tours of Vietnam because they opposed the war. Of the original trio that inspired the Sapphires movie, Laurel Robinson, Beverly Briggs and Naomi Myers, only Laurel and her sister Lois actually went to Vietnam in real life, as Naomi and Beverly refused to go as a protest against the war. The government was also careful to distance itself from those who expressed opposition to the war. In 1970, Robin Archer performed a moratorium protest against the war and she was then immediately dropped from her upcoming tour by the AFOF. Though Australian newspapers worried about the danger to entertainers being in an active war zone, it was the Allies rather than the enemy that often posed the larger threat. Drunken soldiers in the audience and on the bases were far more dangerous than enemies hiding in the jungle. This was proven in shocking fashion on the 28th of July 1969 with the murder of Australian singer Cathy Wayne.
1: Katherine Warnes, stage name Kathy Wayne, was only 17 when she first embarked on a tour of Vietnam with the famous Australian singer Cole Joy in June 1967. Yes, I've already covered what they are. This tour was organised by Face. She needed her parents' approval as she was under 18, but she, quote, leapt at the chance, end quote. Kathy had always wanted to be a singer and began taking lessons in singing and dancing while in primary school. In her early teen years, she was talent scouted and began performing on TV, first on a programme called Opportunity Knox, and then on the popular Bandstand, where she became a regular performer. In the mid-1960s, she began touring Australia with Cold Joy. I think Bandstand was like the precursor to young talent time. Yeah, it was like one of those huge mm. like shows.
0: When Kathy made the decision to go on the Sweethearts on Parade troupe, touring Vietnam again in 1969, the tour was not organised by the government, but rather a privately arranged tour by promoter and performer Ingrid Hart. cold joy warned kathy about touring without the support of face and her parents were also not fans of her second vietnam tour kathy traveled to vietnam a second time partly because her friend a drummer on the tour had asked her but also because she had been according to her father impressed by singing to wounded australian soldiers in a dozen hospital concerts on her previous tour according to some it was also because kathy had met and fallen in love with a u.s serviceman on her first tour
1: and she wanted to go back with him and get married on the 20th of July 1969, Kathy was performing on stage at Nha Nang at a club for the US Marines' non-commissioned officers. She had just finished her final number when she was shot through the heart and killed. The bullet had been fired outside the club, but had passed through an open window to hit Kathy. She was the first Australian woman killed in the Vietnam War.
0: Almost immediately, the apparent shooter was apprehended, a U.S. Marine who had apparently been trying to shoot his commanding officer. The Marine, Sergeant James Wayne Killen, was charged with the murder and sentenced to 20 years' hard labour. But in 1971, after maintaining his innocence, Killen was released after a retrial. No one has ever been convicted of Kathy's murder. Her body was returned to Australia to be buried. Kathy's murder may have been the most dramatic expression of these dangers these performers faced, but women face violence and chaos regularly, even on a small scale. In 1970, for example, also in Da Nang, the chiffons, 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 the chiffons, an Australian group not to be confused with the American chiffons, were nearly injured when grenades were thrown over the fence of the American Enlisted Men's Club when they were performing for 500 people. Drug use was also rampant. Around 43% of USGI's admitted to using heroin in 1971, while alcohol and over-the-counter drugs were also relatively easy to get hold of. In another incident, Glenice and Narelle Francis were performing on New Year's Eve 1969 when drunken soldiers stormed the stage and had to, they had to be forced off by the military police. As Glenice recorded in her diary, we were escorted off and locked in a room,
1: otherwise they'd tear us to bits. End quote. So, as I've now subtitled this bit, uh, funky, make it funky, Hannah. It wasn't all terrible. In reminiscing more recently, many Australian women who performed in Vietnam enjoyed their experience. For some, like Ingrid Hart, touring Vietnam offered a break from boredom and personal problems at home. Touring Vietnam offered many women an adventure and a chance to see the world that they otherwise would not have got. Maureen Alkner toured Vietnam at 16 with the Chiffons, finding everything, quote, pretty exciting in the beginning, end quote, because they worked with famous singers and the Aussies loved us. Nah. When an agent offered them a second tour through an American agency, they jumped at the chance, quote, because we really wanted to go back. End quote.
0: Some wanted to go because they were inspired by World War II singers like Jane Froman, while others like Lorraine felt they had a duty to perform in order to support the troops. Lorraine was a veteran war singer, having performed in Malaysia, Singapore, Kenya, Somalia and the Middle East before she toured Vietnam. Lorraine Desmond always wanted to travel around the world. As a child, she planned to be a stoker on a ship so she could travel for free, but realised that wouldn't work, so she turned to singing and entertaining. In in an interview with Siobhan McHugh for her book Minefields and Miniskirts, Lorraine explained that she repeatedly returned to Vietnam because, quote, somebody's got to care, end quote. Though she didn't support the Vietnam War, or indeed any war, she went anyway as a volunteer because she believed the troops themselves needed it. Quote, it's the work you do when you're not performing that's important, going around to hospitals, eating, drinking, talking with them, end quote.
1: In another interview, she recalled her first time performing for troops in a war zone, looking out to, quote, see all those lonely eyes and how they lit up when they saw somebody who came from their home, end quote. This was the moment that she fell in love with soldiers. The troops in Vietnam were her boys, and she cared for them deeply. She was even given a plaque dedicated to the mother of all Vietnam veterans, and would still get letters 50 years later from troops thanking her, and recalled that it was, quote, very special that you stay in somebody's life for that long, end quote.
0: Just as important as the act was the image, with performers keenly aware they were offering a fantasy of life away from war and needed to dress the part. Ingrid Hart travelled to Vietnam with four suitcases containing her costumes, while Lorraine remembers that her elegant gowns were showstoppers. She recalls that, quote, Their mouths fell open a bit because I wore cabaret dresses, like my silver sequined fishtail, which was all over sequined. I don't think they'd seen many things like that among the scrub and the rubber trees and the red dust of Vietnam, end quote. She was called The Blonde Goddess in the Golden Dress by Aussie Troops.
1: We actually have a photo of that, of the dress that I'm going to put up on our website as well.
0: The performers were normally welcomed enthusiastically. According to Elizabeth Burton, all you had to do was walk on stage and they just screamed. For Ingrid, Vietnam was one of the highlights of her life because, in her words, she was wanted, admired, appreciated and adored.
1: Lorraine's most popular song while on tour in Vietnam was Leaving on a Jet Plane. The first time she sang it for the troops, it was an emotional experience for the soldiers. However, when Leray responded that she would never sing it again, the troops protested, stating, you've got to sing that song whenever you can, because it made us think of our loved ones and it made us feel good. Fourteen years after the war ended, Leray performed the song again at the Welcome Home concert in October 1987, which was a concert organised by the Australian Vietnam Veterans Association to honour veterans who felt their service had been forgotten. LeRae sang Leaving on a Jet Plane at the concert, and as soon as she sang the opening line, My Bags Are Packed, she recalls that the 20,000-strong crowd stood and held their arms out. Nearly choking from the overwhelming emotion, she, quote, nearly died with my leg in the air, unsure how she'd got on with that song, end quote. Standing here outside the door, I hate to wake you up to say goodbye, but the dawn is breaking, it's on, the taxi's waiting, he's blowing
0: are of course the sapphires thanks to the aforementioned absolute bop of a movie from 2012 if you haven't seen it really would recommend the great Saf- movie the sapphires are a group of indigenous women primarily Yoda Yoda, who love soul music the movie itself is not actually completely factual much to hannah's shock when she started writing the episode but it is based on the play by tony briggs who is the son of sapphire member and vietnam entertainer laurel robinson in real life the three members of the sapphires began singing at a young age for their families near shepperton and at the kamaragunja mission God, the Kamara Gunja mission is just such a place of incredible history. I don't, anyway. I don't know much about it, actually. Okay, we're not getting into that right now because no. this episode's already really long. Their costumes were sewn by hand by their grandmother and would tap dance using shoes with pennies hammered into the bottom. Now, the white Australia policy was still in force at the time, and Laurel and her cousins Beverly Briggs and Naomi Myers struggled to see role models in music they could relate to. They were therefore drawn to black American singers like the Shirelles. Though there weren't many, African-Americans touring Australia will be invited to play at the church where Laurel grew up, and it was through this that the women began to sing soul music.
1: They were also inspired as well, later on, um, when they were in Melbourne by a Maori band, who were like, hey, you guys want to kind of come join us on stage? Our like, singer didn't turn up. And I love that. So that's another way that they were inspired Also, that's this. so 60s. Our singer didn't turn up. Can you please sing for us? Yeah. So Laurel, Beverly and Naomi obviously moved to Melbourne as young adults and soon began singing in clubs, hotels, cabarets, parties um, and even at the army barracks and at universities. So it was Laurel and her older sister, Lois, who eventually toured in Vietnam. After performing shows at Pacapanyol Army Training Camp, the Sapphires were offered a chance to tour Vietnam. In contrast to the majority of touring performers who embodied the image of the blonde bombshell, Laurel and Lois wanted to do something different. They performed for large crowds of American GIs and would sing Nagara Barafera, a song taught to them by their grandmother, which was based on a yoda Yorta hymn, Barafera, about God decimating the pharaoh's armies. Laurel remembers being scared to go to Vietnam, but excited at the same time. She recalls one time when they were doing a show at a base and, quote, we saw this movement in the distance, moving out of the forest towards us. We could just make out all these tanks. I said, what's that? And they said, here comes your audience. They came out of the jungle and were cheering and screaming, (laughs) end quote. For Laurel, it was one of the best shows they ever did. When they finished, they went off stage and then they came out and there was no one there. Quote, we just saw them disappearing into the jungle. That's a vision I'll always carry with me for the rest of my life, end quote. They're two over three months, often living with local
0: Vietnamese families and performing primarily for US troops because the Australian promoter thought it would be more popular with the US read, high numbers of black troops. Let's also not look past the racism that was probably... Blatant racism. Blatant racism from the Australian troops. Like, you yeah. cannot blame them at all for going with the American system. Yeah. When traveling to the bases, they were going convoys or even helicopters or cargo planes. During these trips through the jungles and villages, Lois and Laura were brought face to face with the war. They remember seeing napalm used in the jungles and hearing bombs while in Saigon. But they tried to remember the reason they were there, to boost troop morale, to get through the hard times. For Lois, looking back in 2012, she thought, quote, I was either very brave or very stupid. It was a time of a lot of sadness, and we wanted to make the troops happy through our music, end quote.
1: So on the 22nd of April, 1970, Prime Minister John Gordon announced that the 8th Battalion would not be replaced when their tour ended in November. This decision came in response to US President Richard Nixon's policy of, quote, Vietnamization, end quote, which aimed to achieve the withdrawal of US troops by training and equipping the South Vietnamese forces. So basically, the idea was that both the US and Australia would gradually pull out their forces out of Vietnam while the South Vietnamese Army took over the fighting. Whether the South Vietnamese Army could then actually win the war after withdrawal was kind of considered On August the 18th, 1971, Prime Minister
0: Treacherous Bastard William McMahon, father of coal from Charmed... I cannot fucking believe you. Also, I cannot fucking believe this. I have to believe it, I guess. It's written here. Prime Minister Treacherous Bastard William McMahon, father of coal from Charmed, and one-time father-in-law of Danny Minogue... Isn't that just
1: Australia in a sentence, right?
0: That's Oh, my God. ...announced that the remaining members of the task force will be withdrawn by the end of 1971. By the end of the year, only a small Australian force remained, again providing training. It had come full circle from the first Australians sent to Vietnam and the Americans and Australians had really done very little to change things in Vietnam. The US and the North Vietnamese signed a peace treaty in January 1973, but the war between the North and the South Vietnamese continued for another two years until the North captured Saigon at the end of
1: April 1975. In 1976, the North and South were reunited as the Socialist Republic of Vietnam with only a little bit of violence over the next 15 years. Reunited and, and it feels, feels so good. But all of that is a story for another time. As the quotes above show, many women who performed in Vietnam remember their experiences fondly, and their work has been recognised in recent years. In 2012, uh, as we said, The Sapphires was released, documenting loosely the experiences of Laurel and Lois, while Loray Desmond was awarded an Order of Australia this year in January 19, 1921. <laughs> You were doing wow, so Wow, well. we time travelled. Lois, uh, Lorraine Desmond was awarded an Order of Australia in January 1921. Oh my god, you did it
0: again! <laughs> <laughs> what century is this? 21st.
1: Lorraine <laughs> Desmond was awarded an Order of Australia in January 2021, this year at the age of 91. Thank you. But their time performing in Vietnam would take its toll.
0: Oh, this got sad. War entertainers were not immune to the controversy surrounding the war, and upon returning to Australia, some found themselves feeling shame and guilt over their participation in the war. Hannah, this is not a funky note to end on.
1: Right. okay, so here's a funky quote to end on from go-go dancer Elizabeth Burton. Quote, We went up in helicopters one time and arrived where there was a bald hill, a steel girder, a generator, and a tent. The boys in the band set up the equipment. We got in the tent and got dressed. Just the fringe bikinis and that sort of thing. When we came out, there were just thousands of guys on tanks and trucks and the bald hill was a mass of people. They said that we stopped the war, the, that the Viet Cong were watching at the bottom of the hill in the trees. End quote. I love that idea. Such a cool idea. Yeah. just I love the idea of like you dancing in your like fringe bikini and it's just like, yep war's over yeah <laughs> just for like a hot five yeah like, it's we're like we're gonna go gawk at some women boys <laughs> <laughs> it's too funky a time to keep fighting the war right yeah. now
0: i actually first encountered the vietnam war when i myself was conscript um when i was in year nine and we did a special subject about the 60s oh. but i actually read a book called when the hip chicks went to war which was about a group of performers you know in mean? yeah it was like made up but they based it on the case of the woman who was unfortunately murdered kathy Wayne. yeah yeah um
1: Actually, yeah, I, I was looking at books and I saw that book.
0: Yeah, it's it's very young adult. So like yeah. I would recommend it to like, if you've got like, you know, teenage daughters, like, you know, 12 year old daughters who want to learn more, that would probably be a good book to read. Mm. Can't remember much detail because i read it when I was 15 and I'm, <laughs> however old I am now. Um, Yeah, it's a complicated war. Vietnam it's, is the first truly televised war. Yeah, like,
1: it's the first televised war. It was like... Well, true, you've got a lot news. of footage coming yeah. out, but
0: it's very, very regulated. And it's not
1: coming see. out live. Yeah. Like, that's the biggest thing with Vietnam, too, is stuff is coming out and people are seeing firsthand the horrors of war. Mm. Um, i
0: mean, Vietnam are still living through it. The, yeah. Agent Orange is still causing effects yeah. on their population. And, you know,
1: if you're white people and think it's a good idea to make a bar about the Vietnam War in Melbourne, what the maybe fuck are you fucking, fucking do
0: Jesus Christ Oh, almighty. my God.
1: Fuck's seriously, sake.
0: like, honestly, the name of the bar Hanoi Hannah still makes me uncomfortable. Yeah,
1: like it's just, oh. yeah.
0: Anyway, yeah.
1: Oh fuck. Like seriously, just don't. But yeah, I I don't know. I I find the Vietnam uh, more fascinating.
0: I think my dad knows people who left the country to avoid being conscripted. That's I could have made that
1: up. I know people who were he knows a lot of people conscripted. Um, and I've worked with someone who was conscripted Mm -hmm. and I've also worked with someone whose husband was conscripted, but because he was at university at the time, he was able to defer his conscription. Like, so he didn't have to start his service till he finished his degree, but then the war ended before he finished his degree. So he didn't end up going to war.
0: We also know the brother of a very famous conscientious objector. We do? Yeah.
1: Who do we know? Bruce's brother.
0: Ah. I believe. I haven't fully looked into it. so I don't Yeah. Believe, and it's obviously Bruce, Bruce Gates, that history. is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he was in Pentridge. Oh. Yeah, which is pretty fucked up. Yeah. We need to go to the Pentridge Market, though. That looks
1: really fun. We do. Really fun. I've been to the movies oh at Pentridge. God. It's very fun. Yeah. It's my fun mom- being in a prison and going to the movie. It's very weird. Like, you look outside and you're just like, there's a prison wall right there. And I'm going off oh, to see just, a movie. It's just peak Melbourne. They're like, mm, yeah, let's gentrify Melbourne.
0: this place of horrors.
1: Yeah. So. You know, on Pentridge, we will be doing protesting at some point.
0: Oh, great.
1: SOS, anti-Vietnam, the moratorium movements. I'm going to make it happen in a moratorium, podcast. Moratorium, your movement. All right. It's very exciting.
0: Yeah. um, I have nothing to add, really, apart from um, war is hell and it, n- unnecessary, and I really wish we didn't have to do this podcast. No, I'm kidding. Uh-
1: <laughs> <laughs> the podcast is fun. War
0: is not. I don't know. It's just one of those things of it. you're just so past because of the, you know, there's this big question in international relations theory of like what makes a just war, mm. like, and you could argue fighting the Nazis is definitely a just war, yeah. but this thing with Vietnam, it's such a waste because you know in the end the South, yeah, loses, and it's sort of like, and yes, yeah. it was it was just being propped up
1: by yeah. this like needless fucking imperialist and incursion. It's, it's so like intrinsically connected to the Cold War as well because it's like you know Vietnam, Korea. Afghanistan. All these different wars are the US and the Soviets being like, we wanna fight each other, but we can't, so we're gonna send other people to fight fake battle well, not fake battles, but like, you know On false pretenses. battles for us and on false pretenses. Yeah, on false yep. bases. We're gonna support them because we have these weird ideological like, you know, bonus for each other. Ugh. Like so it's sort of, you know, they're just trying to prop themselves up in a way in the global world order. And all these It's like breaking your ordinary own window or- and going, Look, see yeah. there's a crime wave going on All these ordinary people are getting caught up in it and like these countries are getting caught up in wars that would be much, wouldn't have been as big. Like the war might have happened, mm. but the war wouldn't have had the same weapons. It wouldn't have had the same mass. There wouldn't have been any orange and napalm. Yeah, if like the Americans and the Soviets hadn't been like, hey, let's try this shit we're out. We're gonna join. Same ya. with Iran
0: as well. Iran's often like a forgotten thing because it was this idea of like power in the Middle mm. East, oil. Britain's getting in there, France getting in there, yep. U.S. getting in there. It's
1: all just these puppet wars, basically. It's yeah.
0: incredibly cruel and frustrating. Yeah, yeah. this is.
1: Like, you know, I say I love the Cold War and I say I love nuclear weapons because it's funny to say because they're horrible things. It's finding that balance between... They're interesting to study. Humans,
0: at. I think, are inherently drawn to fucked up stuff. Yeah. And there's different levels of fucked up stuff you can be interested in. And there's I mean, true tw- crime is popular for a reason. Yeah. And there's that question of, like, being into dark stuff doesn't make you a bad person, obviously. But this question of what, how are you accessing it? Why are you accessing What are you doing with the information that you're mm. taking in? And that's when you can cross into, like, a grey or even a like crossing our line because it's a great it's not a line but like the work i do with suicide and stuff like i'm not going around sharing methods or anything no or like i'm using it in an anti-suicide fashion but i think it's important to bear witness and that's mm. what historians of the cold war and the vietnam war do they're bearing
1: witness to these atrocities yep. that were placed by these puppet armies mm. basically. and especially like more recently as like historical scholarship has really focused on not the big men great men white men you know, focus of history and, like, the ordinary people that are being impacted by these things. Mm. You're seeing, like, the ways that, you know, the Cold War, like, so Cold War scholarship more recently, like in the last 10, 20 years probably? has Since they reopened more archives in the former Yeah, apart from that. Yeah. But also it's really focused on the impact of, like, the Cold War on the Third World and countries that aren't necessarily, like, Seen as directly impacted by the Cold War, so like it's not, it's not just about America, the Soviet Union, China. It's also about yeah, other places where it's impacting.
0: Like not only that, like the Non-Aligned Movement and mm. like most of what we now call the Third World, because mm. that's what it was called for. It was I remember third being blow,
1: like my mind being blown in undergrad. I think it was like in third year where I found out why we have the First World and the Third I, World. I'm nodding by the way, and yeah. there was no Second World because First World was like the U.S. and the democracy. Etc. So, I want to put massive fucking air quotes around the rest of yeah, I did I do violated. air quotes, yeah. but you just can't see them because it's a podcast. Um, and then Soviet Union was the second world because it wasn't quite as good. And then you had the third world, which was all like the decolonizing countries. But also the non-aligned movement, mm. including um, Yugoslavia, yep. which is a war for another time. And then when the Soviet Union was dissolved in 1991, the second world disappeared, but we still have the terms first and third world. So that's your fun fact for the day. And we've gone very wildly away from Vietnam War singers, but...
0: Yeah, we would also love to say an incredible thank you to LaRae Desmond for her permission to use recordings of her tour rehearsals in this episode, and a big thank you to her good friend Gail Ballantyne for acting as our correspondent with Ms Desmond.
1: And we'd like to thank the National Film and Sound Archive and particularly Angus Johnson um, for providing us with a copy of the recording and help accessing it and understanding copyright and everything. we would also
0: like say a massive fuck you to the National Film and Sound Archive for making it $200 to buy a fucking recording of Prime Minister Robert Menzies, whom we paid his wages without... T- I wasn't born. It's kind of ridiculous that we have to pay for access to the first among equals leader of our nation's it's in the public domain, but it's hosted by the National Archive and Archive. I don't need money because all the money goes to the fucking war. Tomorrow. Hey,
1: government, why don't you fund archives? So
0: we also, um, if you'd like to get more in contact with us, we have a Twitter, we have an Instagram, we have a Facebook, all at Women of War Pod.
1: And we have a website, Women of womenofwarpod.com. And we have a newsletter. So go to Women of womenofwarpod.com forward slash subscribe, put in your deets. And we'll do, yeah. We will send you all the fun things. Um, and as of now, as of this episode, also look on our website and we have an episode page for this episode so you can see all the pics and all the videos that we um, use the audio for in this this yeah. episode. You can see the actual video and I highly recommend and look out for the three soldiers so with their, uh, like, their coat as a blanket. And
0: then you can just spend some time with us looking yeah. through all that.
1: Yeah, spend some time with us. And that's it. We will see you in a fortnight. See you in a fortnight. Woo! We're going to make some certain... Periods of the internet—it's going to make a certain portion of the internet very, very angry. That next episode, I'm oh, very we are—it's going to be fun. <laughs> On that note, see you next time. <laughs> the miniature walked in the joint. I could see you were a man of distinction, a real big spender, good looking. So. Now wouldn't you like to know what's going on in my mind? Then I'll come straight to the point. I don't pop my cock for every guy I see. A hey, big spender. Spend a little time with me. Wouldn't you like to have fun, fun, fun? Wouldn't you like to have laughs, laughs? I could show you a good time. Wouldn't you like to have a good time? The minute you walked in the joint, I could see you were a man of distinction, a real big spender, good looking, so refined. Wouldn't you like to know what's going on in my mind? Well then i come straight to the point I don't pop my cock for every gun I see Hey big spender Spender